The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm the youth pastor here at Coastal, and I get the privilege of continuing on in our uh, series called Summer Reading. And so uh, we're in week three now. Um, This is really one of my favorite series because there's such a wide variety of topics that we get to talk about and discuss during this series. Uh, If you remember the first week, we looked at If by Mark Batterson, uh, you know, about turning our um, our if-onlys into what-ifs. And then last week, we looked at uh, Love and Respect in the Family by Dr. Emerson Erex, and it's just a great book on, on parenting and how to really incorporate love and respect into raising a child. And then this week, uh, we actually get to read a book by Billy Graham. It's called uh, The Reason for My Hope. And it's really just an awesome book. I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, what's so cool about it is it's actually the second to last book that Billy Graham ever wrote. Uh, it was his 32nd book in total, and it was released just weeks before his 95th birthday. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, if I'm 95 and I can even remember my own name, I'm going to count that as a win, let alone writing a book. I mean, but not only did he write a book, but he wrote a great one that really explains everything about his entire uh, amazing 70-year ministry. And so now, uh, let's get a little background on Billy Graham so we can kind of understand the context and everything. Uh, Billy was born on a dairy farm outside of Charlotte, North Carolina in 1918. Uh, He became a Christian at the age of 16, being baptized two years later, and then actually became an ordained uh, minister a year after that. He began working for the Youth for Christ organization uh, before he actually founded his own, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, in 1950. And uh, as a part of that organization, uh, Billy Graham actually got to preach uh, the Word of God to more people than probably any one person ever before. Uh, It's estimated that over 2.2 billion people heard him preach, Uh, 215 million of those uh, people being live at one of his events. And then out of that 215 million, uh, 2.2 million accepted uh, the invitation to become a Christian at these events. Uh, He was said to have preached in 185 nations and was even the spiritual uh, advisor to the past 13 presidents. Um, He was married to his wife, Ruth, for 63 years until she passed away in 2007. And then actually Billy Graham uh, then followed her on February 21st of this year, uh, passing away at the age of 99. You know, Billy Graham really is considered such an influential figure, uh, a large presence in the spiritual circle, especially Christianity. Uh, There's actually a joke about him that kind of shows this, and it's a little corny as any Billy Graham joke might be, Uh, but I want to tell it. So it goes that uh, Billy Graham actually had a speaking engagement. He was coming home from it, so he gets off the plane from the speaking engagement, and there's a a black limousine waiting to pick him up. And so he gets off the plane, he walks over to the limousine driver, and he actually says, you know, I'm 87 years old. I've I've ridden in these things a long time, but I've never gotten to drive one. So he asks the driver if he can drive the limousine. The guy's like, of course, it's Billy Graham. He's like, yeah, sure. So Billy hops in the driver's seat, and they they take off. Uh, So they get on the interstate, and little does Billy Graham know that there's a rookie state trooper uh, parked down the road, actually kind of hiding on an off-ramp. So Billy Graham passed him going about 70 and a 55, and uh, the rookie state trooper pulls over, you know, lights on and everything, and, and pulls the limousine over. And so he gets out of his police car, and he walks up to the window and knocks on it, and uh, the window rolls down, and there's Billy Graham. And the guy's like, oh, hold on just one second for me. So he walks back to his car, and he calls his supervisor. And so he goes, hey, I know, uh, I know I'm new at this, and I know we're supposed to enforce the law, but I also know that some people get a little more leniency sometimes. What should I do? And so the supervisor's like, well, who did you pull over? Uh, is it the governor? 
And the cop says, no, I think he's more important than the governor. And so I was like, well, who is it, the president? He's like, no, I think he's even more important than the president. And the supervisor said, well, then who did you pull over? And he goes, I think it's Jesus Christ because he's got Billy Graham as a chauffeur. So, again, it's a corny joke, but it's good. It just shows how, you know, a man of God, how much of a man of God this guy was. Right, he spent his entire life, from the time he was 18 years old, preaching uh, and sharing the love of God. And so I know me personally, you know, I'm just blown away by what this man was able to accomplish. Right, because I mean, not only was he able to make such a monumental impact on the world around him, but he was able to do so without ever actually damaging his own witness. Right, I mean, right now we live in a time where you hear about more scandals with pastors and Christians uh, than ever before. Right? Now, by no means was he a man without sin, but he was a man uh, that remained faithful to his wife, uh, his ministry, and God's calling on his life. Right? He was always able to keep the right perspective. Right? No matter the level of uh, success or failure, uh, Billy Graham always kept his focus on God and bringing people to him. So my question is how? Right? Think about how is a man who had more you know, success than most probably more critics than most, and more opportunities to turn away from the life that God was calling him to than most people, how is he able to always stay positive and focused? Even in the latter years of his life, right, in 2007, uh, Billy Graham was hospitalized for internal bleeding for 11 days. Uh, the next year, he was again hospitalized for another 11 days uh, in order to put a shunt in his head and alleviate some, uh, some brain pressure. Uh, he had a lot of ongoing health issues later in life, uh, but it was actually at this time that he gave perhaps one of his most famous quotes ever. Um, and it was actually tweeted every 15 seconds after his death. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Well, that's pretty cool. But, but even still, you know, what I want everyone to understand this morning is that while this is a godly man worthy of some recognition, you know, it's not all about him. Just like, you know, the purpose of this whole series, the purpose of the At The Movie series that we just wrapped up, it's to take, you know, a book or a movie or this man's life and use it as a tool to understand a biblical principle. And the principle that we're able to pull away from, you know, from this book along with Billy Graham's life is just how to live a life of hope. Right? So how, how do we live this life? How do we live this life full of hope like Billy Graham? How do we have this faith and this confidence that no matter what's going on in our life, it'll be okay? And Billy Graham actually attributed it to one thing. Uh, it became the purpose of this book. Um, it, what we're looking at today, you know, it actually became one of his most famous sermons that was released uh, on his 95th birthday called My Hope America. Right? The thing that got Billy Graham through every tough time in his life, everything he ever faced, really the thing that fueled his entire uh, amazing ministry and the reaching of billions of people around the world was his hope, right? In the introduction to his book, Billy Graham describes hope as a gift. He says the word explodes with confidence <clears throat> to believe in something greater than ourselves. And it is not found in science, medicine, government, or technology. It is a grand gift that does not drain us of life, but infuses us with lasting benefits that spring forth from its seemingly veiled treasures. And so this hope, right, if it's not found in science, or medicine, government, or technology, where do we find the ultimate hope? You know, for anyone that's really been a Christian for any length of time, 
or really actually even knows anything about Christianity at all. Right? We know that there's hope being referenced. We, we know where it's found. Right? It's found in Jesus Christ. Billy Graham describes this hope in one word, and he says it's salvation. The source of hope is salvation. Right? The salvation offered to us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to atone for our sins is what Billy Graham says can get us through anything life can throw at us. And the salvation, uh, it's pretty simple. It's easy to attain. It actually fits into one little verse of the Bible. Uh, it's actually on the back of his book. It's Acts 16.31. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Right? We have a hope in this world because by believing in Christ, we are saved from the sins that should have cost us everything. But really, what I want to do is, I want to get back to this idea of hope. Right? We stated that we have hope because of our salvation. But what does it actually look like for us? You know, I, I feel like hope is one of these really relatable ideas. Right? Because all of us, all the time, we're always hoping for something. Right? No matter what situation we find ourselves in, uh, no matter what trials or successes or failures we're dealing with, uh, hope is what we're looking for. Right? And this hope can really range from anything from uh, just making it through the work week and getting to the weekend, we're all hoping for that half the time. Uh, maybe it actually goes as far as it's a, a cure for a seemingly incurable disease. We all live with this idea of hope. I mean, I mean think about it. We're, we're always hoping for something. It's in our DNA to be hoping. Right? And God knew this. God created us with a desire, just a deep, deep, innate desire to be hoping for something. And then he went and fulfilled it by giving us the ultimate hope. And, that, and it's really what's crazy about this, this idea of hope especially in the Bible, is that the noun hope, the Greek word elpis, it's actually not found at all in the Gospels. And then the verb to hope, the Greek word elpazine, is only found five times in the Gospels and always, always shows up in a non-religious connotation, a non-religious sense. But when you read the Gospels, right, one can see that the idea of hope is presupposed into almost every verse written. Right, the Gospels uh, contain this notion of hope uh, through basically a sense of expectation of what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. Right? I mean, just think about it. This idea that this, this idea or principle in the Bible, one of the most uh, talked about ideas of the Bible is hope. Right? It's not even mentioned in the Gospels. It's one of the most fundamental ideas or principles of the Bible. It's not mentioned in the Gospels, yet it permeates every single verse in it. Right, the promise of Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers is so profound and so real that it's expected. Right? It isn't doubted, it's a truth. Jesus Christ will save everyone who puts their trust in him. And that's a fact that provides the ultimate hope. But again, you know, what kind of hope? What does this hope look like for us? How do we live a life filled with uh, hope and expectation of Christ. Just what kind of hope is it? So today I want to look at two different kinds of hope that I really believe envelop uh, this hope that Christ provides for us. And so the first type of hope that our salvation through Christ provides is a hope for rescue. A hope for rescue. Jesus Christ uh, provides the hope for rescue no matter where you are. It's kind of funny for those who were here last week and heard Pastor Chris talk about uh, Vacation Bible School or really, if you were a part of VBS at all uh, two weeks ago, you know that this is what we've preached the entire week. 
right? Jesus rescues. It's pretty elementary, uh, but every night uh, there was a Bible point that ended with Jesus rescues. It's like when you're lonely, Jesus rescues. When you're worried, Jesus rescues. No matter what, Jesus rescues. And uh, I don't know about uh, you or any of the volunteers who were there, but those Bible points and those stinking songs were just stuck in my head all week. I don't know what it is about VBS material, right? But it always just gets stuck in your head, no matter what. Like you just can't get it out, and you're singing it, and you sing badly, and so people around you are just looking at you, and you're like, yeah, it's a VBS song. But that was stuck in my head all week. And even those points, and like, you know, I could have been there, and if someone would have said, you know, I'm, come to me and said, I'm struggling with you know, depression or alcohol or uh, divorce, my go-to response would have been, well, when you're lonely, Jesus rescues. You know, because that was just in my head so bad, and it's, it, it's sad, but it's true. Right? It's a point meant for children to understand, but it's still true for all of us. He is the hope for our rescue. And when you think about this idea of rescue, I think one story really comes to mind more than the others uh, in recent news. Uh, it's the story of uh, 12 young soccer players and their coach in Thailand. I'm sure a lot of people have heard the story. Uh, but for those that haven't, uh, there was 12 soccer players and their coach, and after practice one day in Thailand, they decided to go cave exploring. Uh, what they didn't expect was to get trapped down in the cave after uh, torrential rain flooded the cave behind them. And so they were able to survive 2.5 miles down uh, in this cave surrounded by flood water. The last three boys actually got out uh, 18 days after they went missing. And what's even crazier than the story of survival is actually the story of the rescue. Right? So at the beginning of those 18 days, over 1,000 Army, uh, Navy, and local volunteers began searching for these boys. Expert divers uh, from Thailand, on top of them from the U.S. and the U.K., uh, China and Australia were all brought in uh, to look for these kids. Uh, just massive pumps were brought in to try and pump out some of the flood water that was flooding the caves. Uh, one retired Navy SEAL diver actually died uh, looking for the boys when his oxygen tank ran out. Um, and then finally, two British divers actually found the boys, uh, kind of perched up on a rock inside the cave. Uh, so they spend the next day or two just bringing in food and water and medicine and trying to figure out how to get these boys out of the cave. And so they come up with a plan, and then 16 days after the boys got lost, it took 18 divers, 18 divers, 11 hours just to pull out the first four boys. And it took them so long because what they had to do is essentially run a rope the entire length of the 2.5-mile route of the cave. And they had to position oxygen tanks and divers along the way. They had to give the boys a crash course uh, in, in scuba diving. Right, so it took them uh, that long to bring out just four boys. And so when those boys got out uh, the next day, uh, it took another nine hours to pull out four more boys. And then finally on the last day, uh, the divers were able to get uh, the rest of the boys and the coach out of the cave. Uh, Eighteen days later, all safe and sound. I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? Talk about a rescue mission. 18 days, over 1,000 Army, Navy, and volunteers. Divers from at least six different countries, and even the death of one of those divers. All of that to bring home these 12 boys and their coach. That's a crazy rescue mission right there. And that doesn't even touch the rescue mission that Jesus Christ went on for us. Right? That's what the entire Bible is. The story of Jesus rescuing us. 
He is our, our one and only hope for rescue from the sins that weigh us down each and every day. And again, it's not that the specific word hope is in the Bible so many times. It's not there's a specific book of the Bible that says, you know, we're talking about hope here. It's the fact that in every story of the Bible, you can find a story of hope. You can find a lesson on hope. I mean, we can look at it, right? Abraham in Genesis. His story gives us hope that, you know, like Abraham, who was uprooted from his land and people and, and followed God's command to go to a land that he will show him. It tells us that faith in God does not go unrewarded. Right? It also shows us that he is with us every step of the way. Uh, how about Gideon in, in Judges? His story gives us hope that, like Gideon, we can have victory as long as God is on our side. You know, numbers don't matter. When we have God, we are in the majority. How about Daniel in the lion's den, right? It gives us hope that, like Daniel, we can walk into a lion's den with all the odds stacked against us, and we're going to be victorious. Uh, Mordecai in Esther gives us hope that, you know, like Mordecai, if we are faithful to God and leave everything in his hands, he will deal with our enemies. They cannot prevail against us. Uh, Hannah in the book of Samuel. A story like Hannah's gives us hope that when people write us off and ridicule us and mock us, if we remain faithful, God will step up and take care of it on his time. I'm even getting into to bigger characters in the Bible like David, like King David. His story gives us hope that, you know, when God's favor is upon us, he protects us from any attack. And no matter what, we're going to be victorious. How about the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote so many books of the Bible? His story gives us the knowledge and the hope that we can't go too far from God. We can't stray too far from God to where he won't come and pick us up and put us right back where he wants us. It's all just stories of hope, even, even the story of the entire disciple, all the disciples that God chose to do his ministry with him. It gives us hope that we don't have to be super well educated, we don't have to be super rich or super well off. God can still use us if we allow him to take full control of our lives. Right? He gives everyone hope. Everyone from the small characters in the Bible to the ones like King David and Paul and the disciples, all the way to you and me. He gives us hope for rescue. Now look at this package, uh, passage in Romans. It describes our rescue uh, through hope so perfectly. It's actually Romans uh, 8, 18 through 25. And so basically the entire book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to show uh, that you know, salvation comes through Christ Jesus. But in this passage specifically, he talks about uh, our sufferings and rescue. So look at this, uh, verse 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So if you stop right there, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I mean, honestly, that's enough right there. Right? Paul is saying no matter what you're going through, it is minuscule, it is nothing compared to the glories that God has in store for you. And I think that's kind of a tough one to swallow sometimes. Right? The things that we face on a daily basis, all these problems, they seem like the worst thing ever. And they are a lot of the times. They really are bad. You know, cancer, disease, losing your job, bad relationships, uh, the death of a loved one. They're all horrible. They really are. But the mind-blowingly amazing part of what Paul is telling us is that they are nothing compared to what God has in store for us. Right? When you compare the two, uh, our problems are just nothing. It's a crazy thought. But let's just keep going. Verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. There it is right there, this idea of being liberated from bondage and brought into freedom. That's all we want. This is our rescue. What we have to understand is that God says that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are in line to inherit God's kingdom. We have it all coming to us, every amazing glory, every amazing thing you could ever think of. But Paul points out that suffering, that trials, that struggles are the path that we tread as we move from human nature right, into this blessing, into the glory that God has promised us. If we keep going, verse 22. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In this hope, we are saved. We are rescued. This hope of salvation, this adoption into God's family. This is what Billy Graham's entire book is about. It says, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. In my head, I picture like a kid on Christmas morning. Right? They come downstairs, they're all excited, and they see all these amazing presents that they know is going to be so awesome to tear open, uh, but their parents aren't awake. So the rule is that you can't touch the presents, right? And so you can just imagine them sitting there just waiting and you know, rocking back and forth and just being so excited for what's to come. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us. Right? But, then, but then he takes it even a step further. He kind of brings it back down a little bit and puts it uh, back into perspective. Uh, the end of verse 24, it says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. <clears throat> Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. You know, most of the time, we don't know what's coming. We don't know why we face the trials and the sufferings that we do. We don't know why the bad stuff happens when the bad stuff happens. We don't know why the good stuff happens when it happens. We have all these plans in our heads of how things are going to go, how our life's going to go. And they just get wrecked constantly. And Paul understands that in this passage. He empathizes with that. But then he throws it back to us. You know, if we know exactly what's going to happen every time it does, where's the hope? Right? Where's the faith in that? God gives us this desire to hope for what is to come. Because what we have to understand is that you know, even though most of the time we can't see what's going to happen next, we have to realize you know, when God rescues us, when we are rescued from something, we are saved for something. Right, when we are rescued from something, we are saved for something. When God rescues us from one spot in our lives, it's so that he can put us somewhere else. Right, so that we can uh, use all these difficult situations in our life, all these difficult things that we go through, all these tough life lessons to really make a difference. That's, not how, that's how he not only rescues us, but also how he pushes us forward in life. So, I mean, now we, we have this hope for a rescue. But when you think about it, why do we even need rescue in the first place? And most of the time, it's because we've got ourselves into a situation that needs rescuing from. And the passage we just looked at said that we are subjected to frustration not by our own choice. Right? Who would choose to be subjected to that? But by the ones that subjected us. 
It's kind of tough to understand, right? But we didn't choose it. Humanity chose it for us. Humanity brought sin into this world. And now Jesus is there picking us up, rescuing us, cleaning up the mess. So what happens after he's done that? What happens after we've been rescued? What's the hope for next? After you've been picked up off your back, after God picks you up off your knees, dusts you off, what's the hope for now? I think it's a hope for redemption. Right, the hope for redemption. And honestly, Billy Graham says the reason for hope is salvation. But redemption is basically salvation wrapped up into one word. Right, hope is wrapped up into salvation, but salvation is wrapped up into redemption. Right, you can't have true hope without salvation, and you can't have salvation without redemption. And that's, that's really what we want, isn't it? I mean, you think about all the stories that we like. What are the stories that we like to hear, you know? Whether it's books or movies or even real life. We all love a comeback story. We all love a story of redemption. Even the very idea of redemption is one that we, that we love. You know, take away all the, the spiritual context or anything like that. I mean, redeemable things, right? It's kind of what make our world go around, like money. The idea that we can work for something, have it, and then redeem it for something else that we want. It's almost kind of like hope in that it's an innate desire to want to be able to redeem something for someone else or something else. We just love redemption. And so one of my, uh, one of my favorite movies about kind of redemption, um, it's going to sound a little weird, but it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Right? I love that movie. Uh, it's not Christmas unless you've seen How the Grinch Stole Christmas at least a couple times. You've got to watch the cartoon and the Jim Carrey version. Right? I like the Jim Carrey one a little more, but they're both good. And so what happens, right? You know, the Grinch comes in, he steals all the stuff from all the Whoville people, and he goes back up to his cave, and then he has this change of heart. He brings it all back down. They're all happy and singing in the end. Right? But that's not how it works in real life. Right? When something goes wrong on our end, in our life, we can't always just do something to redeem ourselves. That's just not how it works. In real life, there are consequences. Right? There's fallout from the decisions that we make. And that's kind of where uh, books and movies differentiate from our real life. Uh, even, even more so, our spiritual life. In, the, in his book, uh, the book we're talking about today, Billy Graham tells a story about a sheep farmer and his son. And so the story goes that there was a sheep rancher in South Africa uh, who had his son that was, was not at all interested in being a sheep farmer. And so uh, the father got kind of old. Uh, the years passed by and his wife had died. And the father, or the son, decided that he was going to leave his father. Not only did he leave him, but he disgraced him bad in doing so. He said, I don't want any part of this. As far as you having a son goes, just consider me dead. It's pretty harsh stuff. And so the years passed on, the father ended up dying. Uh, So with no son around to to claim his inheritance, uh, all of his stuff actually went to auction. All the sheep farmer's belongings went to auction. So all the neighbors and the friends that had been there uh, for the sheep rancher his entire life uh, came to this auction. And uh, as the auction was finishing up, uh, the auctioneer held up one last item. It, it was a picture in a frame. And as the bidding started, uh, a young man stepped up. And he offered a few dollars for the picture. And uh, as soon as he did that, another lady next to him stepped up and offered considerably more. And the young man knew that he couldn't bid that much, so he hung his head. And uh, after the auction was over, he went up to the lady and he asked her why the picture was so valuable to her. Uh, she told him that it wasn't the picture but it was the picture frame that was so valuable to her. 
Evidently, it was a, a rare antique worth a lot. And see, so the young man beget, uh, began to get kind of emotional. And the woman noticed this. Uh, she said, why, why, is this, why are you so interested in this picture? And he said, that is a picture of my father. And the boy in the picture, the one who deserted him in his old age, that is me. He went on to say, the frame is worth nothing to me, but the picture is priceless. I rejected my father and everything he ever offered me. Uh, now I have to spend the rest of my life trying to live up to his name. And so the, the woman saw how sad he was, and so she began to pull the picture out of the frame for the young man. And as she did so, an envelope fell out. And it was actually a note uh, from the father to the son. It said, if you return to me, my son, my prayers will be answered. I will not give you just a dirty sheep farm, but the rewards of my labor. And, uh, there was also a banknote inside the envelope that fell out. And uh, it was one that uh, the father had left for his son to redeem and uh, get some money to, to take care of his needs. And so when he got the bank, though, he redeemed it. Uh, the young man decided to take the money and actually try and buy back the father's possessions. Uh, but he couldn't afford it. Uh, but seeing his you know, repentant heart, his sadness, uh, all the neighbors and the friends came together and decided to give him his father's possessions back. And he spent the rest of his days uh, raising sheep on his father's farm, answering his father's prayers. That's a pretty cool story. Uh, to me, it sounds a lot like the story of, you know, the prodigal son coming home. Um, but for me, this story makes much more, you know, much more sense than how the Grinch stole Christmas or anything like that uh, on the story of redemption, the idea of redemption. This is how I think it happens more in real life. Right, what happened when the son decided to desert his father and then come back? He couldn't redeem himself, right? He couldn't do it. He tried to pay a couple of dollars to get the picture back, to, to get some semblance of his former life, but he couldn't afford it. He was just out of luck. But then what happened? Right? The neighbors actually purchased for him what he couldn't for himself. And this is exactly the same thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? He paid the price that we couldn't pay. He took the punishment and the weight of our sins that we couldn't shoulder. There is no greater redemption story than that one right there. Right, from Adam and Eve sinning in the garden to Christ dying on the cross to us standing here right now accepted by God and co-heirs with Christ in his inheritance. That's the redemption story. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. One man paid the price for all of us. Jesus Christ is the redeemer. Jesus Christ is the rescue. He is the story of salvation. He is the story of hope. Hope for both rescue and redemption. I believe in him as the only way out of sin and into the inheritance that like the sheep and uh, the sheep farmer and his son uh, that he has already set aside for us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, after you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. One more passage, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, Jesus Christ, God the Father, he is the living hope, and he's already paid it all. Right? He bought the redemption. Because you see, while, the, while hope is presupposed and put into almost every verse of the Bible, right, redemption is the great theme of the entire Bible. Right? Jesus Christ bought our redemption with his blood because he loved us so much. He freed us of the, uh, from the chains of sin by hanging on the cross. God's amazing plan of redemption is what takes our just okay story and turns it into an amazing story. I mean, his truly incredible rescue mission was completed through Jesus Christ more than 2,000 years ago when he hung on the cross and shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven, so that my sins could be forgiven. Right? All of our sins, all the sins of man would be forgiven. And when he conquered death and was raised from the grave three days later, proving that no grave no power of death could hold him back. That's when the story was complete. Right? That's when he stretched out his arms and said, I have come so that you might have life. Right? That's the moment when the greatest search and rescue mission ever heard of was completed. Right? That's when the greatest redemption story ever written was finished. It was finished by Jesus Christ for us. And so that's where it comes back to us. And what I want to leave you with today is just a little bit of reflection. What's the story of your hope? What has God rescued you from? You know, what is your story of redemption? And then what is, what is your hope going forward? Maybe for some of you, it's just to live a life filled with the hope that Christ provides. You know, whether it be a hope for rescue from a situation that you find yourself in, uh, or a hope for redemption, or hope for God just to restore you back to that co-heir in Christ, with Christ that he's always valued you as. Maybe for some, it's just a hope to open yourself up to him a little bit more and allow him to you know, infiltrate your life and your heart with this sense of hope. Like we always say here at Coastal, uh, everyone has a next step. And maybe for some of you today, uh, your next step is actually to sign up uh, for our baptism, to be baptized next week. We have our beach baptism uh, next Sunday out at Folly Beach. It's going to be an awesome time. Maybe that's what's next for you. Or maybe for some of you today, you know, the continuation of your story of hope is actually the acceptance of salvation. Right? The acceptance of the gift that Christ offers you through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Maybe that's you today. And so if that is you, uh, just everyone, uh, just pray this with me. Father God, I just, I thank you for, for all the gifts that you offer us. God, I thank you for the hope that you provide, the hope that you offer to me in my life. God, I thank you for rescuing me. I thank you for loving me so much that you wouldn't allow me to stay where I'm at. I thank you for loving me so much that you got up off your throne and sent your, down your one and only son to die on the cross for me. God, I thank you for changing my story from one of sin 
and death to one of rescue and redemption. And God, just just help me to live my life uh, focusing on the hope that you provide. No matter what situation, no matter what my situation is, no matter what trial or or tribulation or struggle, uh, good time, bad time, sickness, disease, uh, bad relationship, good relationship, consequence, reward, God, help me to focus on the hope that only you can provide through salvation. God, I just thank you for all this. I thank you for all that you've done for each and every one of us. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.